1: Read the Bible and talk about it. Um, last time we were here was uh, two weeks ago, uh, so we kind of took a week off uh, as many of you know and have probably been uh, you know have uh, if you've been following the show, we, you know mom's health is in decline, so we've been trying to get out to see her as much as we can, which oftentimes is over three and four day weekends, uh, which means we will generally be traveling all, traveling on the day that we typically record mm-hmm. so um And then also some friends of ours know that, you know, if you've been following us on Facebook, uh, you know that we went to the Frida Kahlo exhibit at the Philbrook, which was a whole (laughs) lot of fun. Uh, Unfortunately, by the time this airs, it will have been closed. So uh, moved on, (laughs) not the Philbrook, just the Frida exhibit. And uh, so I can't uh, recommend anyone go to it unless it happens (laughs) to be coming to your town at your local art museum.
0: But what was so funny about y'all's trip is the kids come rushing in and they don't say one word about the Frida Kahlo exhibit. They are all about the big blue whale in Katusa. So
1: yes, yes. So
0: opposite ends of the cultural spectrum, right there. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, it is the largest piece of kitsch art on the on the Oklahoma stretch of the Route 66, <laughs> 66 highway. That's what it's advertised as in
0: it's definitely it is that. 100 per-
1: i'm gonna say <laughs> that description is about as correct as you can get um so the the reason uh we stopped there was we uh oklahoma issues route 66 passports uh to promote tourism and you can go to different locations and get stamps from the various locations and you they you know they you know stamp that you visit it is kind of a fun thing for the kids to do and uh, we happened to be in the area, so we we dropped in. There's um I'm not gonna go through the whole history of blue whale, but if you know about the blue whale in Katusa, Oklahoma, um you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you don't look it up, it's kind of it's funny. It's just It's
0: ridiculous. There's not it's beyond yeah, <laughs> funny. And it just cracked me up because the just the total opposite ends of the cultural spectrum right there. Right right there.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It was it was it was kind of funny. Um the girls said they had a good time at the at the uh free day exhibit though. Um they were they were a little disappointed cuz the Philbrook is not a very hands-on museum. Yeah. Um, as you might imagine, um being that it's it's art. Um <laughs> don't touch the but, paintings. You know, Just don't do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we we've got and we have some really good museums here in Norman and Oklahoma City that do have a lot of hands-on features and aspects mm-hmm. to them so that they're used to going places where there are things to do. Um we do have uh the the local Fred Jones Art Museum here is 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 really good for for as small as Norman is. Um but we do have it, you know, it's part of the university so it does have a good collection.
0: It's a really cool museum. Yeah. I, you know, I get up there every few years and just go to poke around because it's it's a pretty cool place to visit. Of course, we're we're giant geeks and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we've um what inflicted our children with that so
1: (laughs) yeah and well and uh and the other cool thing about the Fred jones museum is it's free right um it's so you can go at any well i mean it's it's there's a some kind of i don't know exactly what it is there's some kind of endowment or something that pays for it um so we don't have to you don't have to pay admission uh, but it's it's a really good museum for the size Mm -hmm. and um and for the size of the town, Norman's not exactly a big town, but again, having the university here really does help bringing in a lot of the, the culture and things like that.
0: Well, it's significantly bigger than where I live, but <laughs> you know, uh, at least, yeah, and it, and it melds into other larger cities. So it, it kind of is the best of both worlds there because you have some yeah. big city stuff and some small town stuff all mixed into one.
1: Yeah, no, we we like it here. So, um, but, but yeah, that's why, that's the, all of that to say. That's why we were not here last week is because we were traveling to see Emily and mom and everything. And
0: y'all guys have just traveled like see us, like y'all like bring supplies. I mean, you, your wife, she comes in, you know, with like provisions for the next month (laughs) and freezer meals and things I don't have to think about. And it's amazing.
1: So, you know, just uh, we're, we're one reason we're I like kind to of see a, come. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, it's, I mean, for, for the distance we're at, it's kind of hard to really be that hands-on. So that's just, it's something we can do to help. So, you know, there's not a lot that we can, but she, we, we try. She
0: needs to, like, do, like, a course on how to to do that for people because, you know, I, I know I, I'm in a lot of caregiver, well, I'm in a caregiver group, and, you know, just meal planning not just the prep, but the planning is such a huge additional stress for people who mm-hmm. are caregiving. And so it it really is good. And then she like she does like the whole thing. Like, you know, you get the meal in the Ziploc bag with the little card with the instructions, a crock pot liner if it requires one. It's like all right there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it's super, super easy. You just I don't even look at what they are. I just go in and grab one and that's what we're eating. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> whichever one's on top. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and I understand the the decision making part because, like, uh, Mickey and I, we just, we keep a list of recipes we've enjoyed. And, and we, I mean, we've probably got like 40 different recipes over the years, but just picking which one we're like, any one of these we're going to eat and enjoy <laughs> it, but it's just which one do we, do we want to do? So, I, I definitely get that. Um, so we, I don't know. It's Well, it's, it's really helpful. It, it, and, you know, so
0: it isn't like Nathan and Mickey are just taking this, this, uh, vacation time off and not podcasting. Like they're actually contributing to the well-being uh, physically of various members of the household and my sanity. So, you know, it, it's a, it, it's a worthwhile endeavor is what I'm trying to say, because we're trying, we're trying so hard right now just to keep things as simple as possible. And so that, yeah, it is a huge help. And So, and, you know, we're still fighting through. I'm ties in the middle of building my study. Our house has been in a little bit of an uproar because of that. And, uh, but we're almost there. So I'm actually going to have a place to work. So maybe I can get ahead on some of my prep time and we can be a little bit more consistent because of that. Uh, probably wishful Mm -hmm. thinking, but you know, I'm always hopeful. So
1: (laughs) no, I get it. I get it. Well, cool. Well, I know that's a lot more information about us than most people want, but um like i just I did feel like we needed to explain why we did not have a show and right we have we have mentioned in the past that we will probably have more of those weekends over the, at least for the next little while um while mom's living with you and everything yeah um because it's i actually i've taken on more duties at work and my schedule has changed, so I'm no longer off all day on Fridays actually uh work till noon so I, I don't have we don't have as much time to record ahead right uh, i say work till noon i go into work at noon and work till like four right so um uh, but that's yeah just so you know we're we're trying to uh to keep it going for everyone and we we do still enjoy it it's just uh time restraints and and family and and, and all that energy so.
0: reserves oh my goodness yeah
1: so. yeah because what you're doing takes a lot of energy uh taking care of mom
0: caregiving is a whole new thing. I mean, we've done it before, but this has been the first time I've been like the lead on that. So it's, it's, yeah, it it is what it is. But anyhow, um, we were talking about Solomon and specifically we were talking about Hiram last week. And I only got some of the information in uh, about Hiram and and his stuff. So I figured we can get back into that. I want to touch on a couple of things, uh, go a little bit more in depth on, and then move back into the scripture. Uh, because to me, this is like, this is one of those areas in the Bible where it's both good and bad, where you've got like all of this crazy lore that has been built up around this specific event. And so in some ways, it's very fascinating to see how people have taken this, this time and passage of the Bible and, and built like almost like this alternative universe. Uh, maybe you know a parallel universe where things are almost the same, the facts line up, but then there's like these added dimensions to it. And some of them are really informative and some of them are just straight up bizarre. And so I'm going to address some of the bizarreness and the weirdness that goes on with uh, this stories, But at the same time, where we do have some good historical information, I, I think it's good to bring that out. So um, when you know, one of the really cool things with the Bible that I think is whenever we find those historical pieces that say, this is the right time frame, these are the right circumstances, the cultural points line up where we can go, ah, yes, the the Bible is presenting us with history. It's not just presenting us with a nice little story or a fable. It is actual history. And One of the the pieces of those puzzles is the discovery of a sarcophagus, a Phoenician sarcophagus, and it was to King Hiram. It's got an, well, it wouldn't be an A, but when you transliterate it, it's an A, in front of Hiram. So a lot of scholars and um, researchers believe that this was the Hiram from the Bible, And so before this, we didn't have any concrete evidence that this guy even existed. We had some histories that were referenced by Josephus, but we don't have those histories. They were lost. We only know them from quotations from other people. Uh, We've got him mentioned in the Bible. But other than this, he just doesn't seem to be a real person. And then there's this discovery of the sarcophagus that's from the right time period. And it has a 38-word inscription on the rim and lid. And it's the oldest piece of Phoenician writing discovered to date. And so I was going to read what it says, because I think it's kind of interesting to see how he was viewed as a person within his own culture. And it says, A coffin made to Itabul, son of Ahiram, king of Byblos. Now remember, Byblos is the same town as... um, as Tyre, for a high Rome, his father, lo, this he put him in the house of eternity. Now, if a king among kings and governor among governors and commander of an army should come up against Gabal, and when he uncovers this coffin, then may he strip off the scepter of his judi- judiciary, sorry, wonderful word there, judiciary, uh, may he be overturned, the king of his kingdom, the peace and quiet may flee from Gabal. And as for him, one should cancel his registration concerning the libation tube of the memorial sacrifice. Now, obviously, there's a lot of that that you've got to have cultural context to understand. And I don't have all of it, but the, the, the sarcophagus itself actually predates the biblical ca- account. Uh, but one of the things we've got to remember about archaeological finds so many of them are recycled. They, they don't always start out being for the person whose name is on them today. And so, mm-hmm. you, because you got to remember, this is not like they could just print this stuff out. These are like stone vessels, stone buildings, sometimes very large stone buildings, or, you know, we have smaller items. It's still a, a material that's hard to work with and you're doing it all with hand tools. So instead of reinventing the wheel or the temple or the sarcophagus, you just took off a layer and inscribed something new. And Mm -hmm. so, and this was very, very common, uh, most notably with the Egyptians. And this is the reason why there are certain pharaohs who were almost lost to history again, because future pharaohs came along and took their faces off and put a new one on and, Took off the old descriptions or changed the names, and uh, we can see evidence of that, so that's really cool. Um, but the even though the sarcophagus itself is older, the writing seems to come from this time period, and you can tell that by the the form of the writing and the way words are written. And so these are all things. again, if you're very familiar with a certain time period, you're very familiar with a culture. You can, you can read something and get a feel for when it was written. And one of the things, too, I, even English readers can do this, and we talked about this before, but I think it's important to remember that, you know, if we pick up a, a book written by William Shakespeare or Chaucer, we can still read it, but we immediately know that style of English does not come anywhere, it's not a product of our times we we know kind of what time period it comes from you can pick up a book from the early 1900s that wasn't that long ago and you can see the shift in the english english and you you know that again it was not written in our time and you yeah so
1: well i mean it, it it's kind of like you know there's there's uh i don't remember when it was but there was a few every few years this thing makes the rounds there's this supposed uh manuscript found that that tells early christians that there's another prophet coming and it points to muhammad and all this and it's you know everyone goes through it and and but they're like but whenever you ask people who are familiar with they're like oh yeah that's been debunked a hundred times because the all the anachronistic language Mm -hmm. and 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 people go what do you mean by that and you're like well think about you're watching you know Think about if you're watching a movie set in the Middle Ages and somebody calls someone else dude or bro. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you're going to be taken out of the scene a little bit. and You're going to realize that was not written by someone in the Middle Ages. You know, it, it's, it's, that's, it's that simple. Well, I mean, uh,
0: think about like uh, a great movie to illustrate that would be like A Knight's Tale. Uh, you know, you, you have Chaucer, actually, who shows up as a character. And, um, you know, he's using the flowery speech. He's doing what you would expect Chaucer to do. But then he incorporates these slang terms from the 90s into it. Uh, You know, David Bowie's uh, Golden Years is one of the songs in there. And so uh, you even though you have all the quote, uh, the the set dressing is correct Mm -hmm. or, or mostly correct. To, for that time period that it's supposed to be portraying, you immediately know it's not a historical representation by the language. Right. That's your first tip off that this is not supposed to be historically accurate. And so, yeah, and I don't know what it is. So there's this really weird thing in our culture where we go, hey, if something's old, it's got to be true. And mm-hmm. which is completely ridiculous. This is like saying that anyone born before, you know, 1950 had to tell the truth when they wrote something. Um, you know, it, it, it just it makes no sense because people are still people. There were still things like tabloids or tabloid like or in, in, in nature and content. Uh, people wrote mm-hmm. satire. People wrote various forms and genres as soon as we started writing. And so to think that people didn't do this because they were in a different time period is ridiculous because now you're saying they aren't human beings with the same kind of sensibilities and, you know, the same talents that we have today. And how arrogant is that? And so I think we need to be very careful to go, oh, well, just because something's old, it must be true. That it's not the case. It's never been the case. And it will never be the case. And so I, I just really get frustrated when people go, "Well, you know, it, it's got to be old. I, I, well, fine, yeah, it can be old. It can date back to the time of Jesus. that's fine. but the our criteria is not age. Our criteria is what's in the on the pages in our Bible. And if it doesn't line up mm-hmm. with that, if it doesn't line up with the the revelation that we have preserved in our history and tradition as Christians, then it's not it's not valid for our faith. And so I think we forget that and we forget that we need to really be paying attention to the Bible first. And one of the reasons okay, I'm sorry, a little bit of a rabbit trail here if you haven't already picked up on this. One of the reasons people fall for this stuff, I censored myself there. Uh the reason why we fall for this stuff is because people do not know their Bibles. So many Christians simply do not know their Bibles. They don't read it. And I'm not like trying to force some kind of prescribed quiet time on someone. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not getting legalistic about it. I'm just saying, if your faith is supposedly the most important and defining factor of your being, then you need to be in God's word. You need to be seeking out the truth. You need to know it so that when something comes you know, across your feed and Facebook or on Twitter, you go, wait a minute, there's something a little off in this. There's some reason I need, you know, take some time, research Mm -hmm. it, look into it. Uh, I'm not saying there's not going to be new, exciting discoveries and archaeological finds and, uh, you know, text and documents that are going to pop up that might influence or, or shape how we read something to bring us to a better understanding. That's wholly possible. However, we need to be aware enough to know when something is a blatant lie. And mm-hmm. we just, by and large, the Christian community is too ignorant to be able to do that. And I, I know that sounds harsh, I, I'm, but I'm coming at this from the perspective of, I taught Christian ministries classes for the next generation of pastors, and these are kids who did not, and I say kids, they were young adults, who did not know the most basic, fundamental Bible stories. I'm not talking about in-depth, complex theological issues. I'm talking simple Bible stories, and yet they felt like their life's goal was to be behind a pulpit. So if you're going to be part of the Christian community, and especially if you're going to be in Christian uh, leadership, demonstrate your, your devotion, demonstrate your loyalty, by taking time to know more about this book, I, mm-hmm. I I have a hard time taking anyone seriously who says I'm a Christian, but they can't pick up a Bible and read, they can't turn on an audio book and listen. And so I I understand that you know study takes devotion, and I'm very fond of it. This is something I enjoy doing, so I'm blessed in that way. But at the same time, sometimes our faith, even though we aren't saved by works. Our faith requires acts of dedication and commitment if it's going to be real and valid. So, um, anyhow. I'm.
1: Well, and that, and that goes back to the conflation between, uh, what we, ta- we kind of take the, the doctrines and ideas of salvation uh, where it's not anything we do, and then we want to try to apply that to our calling. And, of course, we have our, our saying, you know, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. I mean, I, how many times you've heard that from a pulpit? Oh, well, I mean,
0: you know, God's just going to zap this information into your head, right? <laughs> and,
1: and so, and so we're, you know, we have these people who are just sitting around waiting, going, "Well, you know, when when God gives me the motivation, I'll get that done." Well, motivation sometimes comes through incremental acts of discipline mm-hmm. to the point where things become automatic, right? And so that's it's not something that, you know. That, that it's just going to happen, mm-hmm. and we are required to develop some discipline. I mean the 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 word disciple <laughs> is someone who's practicing a discipline, right? I mean it's it's right there, right? Um, and and so.
0: we aren't even talking about like you've got to memorize, you know, the Gospel of John. It, just be familiar. Be familiar with what's in the book. Are you ever going to know it all? No, you're not. Uh, anybody who says they know everything about the Bible is lying to you or they're delusional. And you know, so the point isn't that anyone learns it all. It's that we all learn our little bit of it and we bring that to the table to help others out. And mm-hmm. so we expand the knowledge bit by bit through our own personal studies so we can talk about these things. We can encourage other people through the word. We, we know how to apply this to to life beyond just quoting a Bible verse that sounds nice. And so it, I, I just I get really frustrated whenever I deal with um, people who want to tell me how, how fabulous they think you know Christianity is, and you know they're all about God and glory and whatever, but they they just won't take two minutes to get just a little bit more knowledge in their head. And so mm-hmm. anyway, now that I've grumbled at people, um, I'm tired. I'm really tired and I'm a little cranky. Um, <laughs> well,
1: I mean, I, I think these are things that I, we've, we've mentioned a lot of them before, but I do think that there is, there, there it needs to be said again and again because it seems like people aren't getting it i mean from the time of paul it's in the time of of the writer of acts who wrote Acts? john wrote acts yeah luke Luke Acts. sorry um the uh yeah where you know where he talks about the bereans Mm -hmm. and why were they considered more righteous well because they searched the scriptures they studied the bible Mm -hmm. you know it and and you know, as much as the New Testament is great, we really need our our New Testament church to be familiar with what's going on in the Old Testament, so we're not caricatur- caricaturizing. Yeah, is that a word? Yeah, it is. Making a caricature of the salvation story, um, which happens oftentimes in a lot of churches. But um, well, if you we'll, we'll get more on that when we get to Matthew. But
0: <laughs> well, and, and when you understand the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and the context. Or these deep theological thoughts that Paul offers, now his theology makes more sense. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, so many people have been so confused by some of Paul's writing. And it's like if you would just go back to the parts of the Hebrew scriptures he's referencing, you would understand this. And so, mm-hmm. now I'm not saying Paul's easy, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But there are tools out there that can help you be better in understanding him. So, um, mm-hmm. yep. we were in, uh, all of this about Hiram is in 1 Kings 5, and uh, th- I had talked about how there were 30,000 um, workers who were being rotated through in order to provide a labor on at four month intervals for the, the building of the temple, and mm-hmm. now... One of the things that, that we need to take into account is with that particular passage, we have a parallel account in Second Chronicles 2, uh, 17 through 18. It says, Then Solomon counted all the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census of them that David his father had taken, and there were found to be one thousand, uh, yeah, 100,000, 153,000. That's what I'm trying to say. 600, <laughs> 153,600 men um, some 70,000 of them have, he assigned burdens 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and 3,600 as overseers to make the people work now the first thing that stands out about this passage is there's no mention of those 30,000 men absolutely none and so one of the reasons why commentators think that chron- the chronicler left that out is because they did not want to draw attention to uh, Solomon's use of Israelites in forced labor, and that they wanted to to keep him this nice, shining, bright, golden boy who was the king over the golden era. So instead, the chronicler actually specifies that Solomon's labor force was composed of resident aliens. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this translation. Let's just let's just be upfront about that. Um, it's not wrong, okay? I, I, I want to acknowledge that. It, it's not an incorrect translation. It totally works here. I, so in some ways, I can't throw too much shade. The reason why I'm not a huge fan of that translation is because when we say resident alien, all of a sudden, we have our own political baggage imposed on this text. Mm-hmm. We, we aren't seeing this through the eyes of the chronicler or the person who wrote um, Kings. We're, We're seeing it through our own eyes, and that leads to issues. Because, you know, you want to talk about immigration, and you want to talk about aliens, and you want to talk about people being in the country without proper credentials. Now we have a whole hotbed of strong emotions and ideologies that have no place in the Bible. Uh, it was a different time and culture. And so I think that it would probably be more of a service to the reader if we use the term that the readers would be familiar with, which would be Gentile or the Goyin. Uh, these are Gentiles. These are non-Jews living in Israel. And it, Exactly who these people are are not specified here within the text, but we know from prior passages that we have a host of people who are not Israelites living in the land of Israel. Uh, David bought the field from a Jebusite, uh, the field where the temple was being constructed. There's at least two Hittites in David's mighty men, uh, the Gibeonites who we saw appeal for justice from David in 2 Samuel. They're all living in this area. And then later, we're going to have a more detailed list of various nations that are, are represented in this time. Now, um, some, like I said, some commentators claim that, that the chronicler is attempting to obscure this uh, fact that Solomon used um, that he, quote unquote, enslaved Israelites. And I think that really takes it too far. Uh, Dr. Paul House, which we're using his commentary, makes an excellent point that being forced labor is not the same as enslavement. So in 1 Kings 5, the Israelites are simply called laborers. Uh, mus is the word there in, in Hebrew. And in 1 Kings 9, where it does talk about those who were enslaved, we actually have uh, "masobed," which is, uh, laborers who are slaves or servants. And so, um, there's, there is reason to think that there is a distinction. Hector, hold on one second. I have a dog in my is the face. Dog, <laughs> is the dog the causing eat. trouble again? I
1: can't. I, yeah, I don't have a video feed of you this week, so I can't tell what's going yeah, on. Yeah, he
0: just you know, climbed up here with me. Uh, but then in First uh, Kings 9.22, the writer explicitly states that Solomon did not enslave the Israelites. That they, yes, he did co-opt them. And this is like a draft, like a military draft, where, yes, you're required to to spend some time in service to the government. But you're not a slave. And if you don't understand the difference between those two states of being, you don't understand what slavery is. So, um,
1: yeah. Well, and, and something else, um, and back to the, the resident alien thing, um, one of the things that you, you were talking about, you know, we kind of get our political views, we get our modern eyes on when we think of, of people from other countries working, we think of, of cheap labor, people being mistreated. But I mean, there, there's a. Again, I know I've referenced the Marlin Mansion a whole lot, (laughs) but one of the things that the house took three years to build, and part of the reason it took three years to build was because every fixture, every stone fixture was carved by hand. Every piece of art was, you know, hand painted, handcrafted. I mean, just it took years. And before the house was built, they actually put in a they built a, a they built lodging for the artisans and their assistants, who were all going to live on the property while the, uh, while the house was being constructed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was a place of honor right. for these... I mean, because they brought in people from Europe, I mean, who were top of their field in these various areas of art to, to build this stuff. They didn't just say, hey, you can hold a brush. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's... Um, It's a very different thing from what we would think of, of today.
0: Well, as an artist, you know, that just sounds like sheer heaven, you know. Oh, you're going to let me live. You're going to provide for my basic human needs and let me do what I love to do. How cool is that? I mean, even today, if somebody would say, hey, I'm going to take care of what you need to survive and to live in a relative level of comfort, and you're going to be free to to study, to paint, to draw, I would be like mm-hmm. sign me up. So <laughs> I mean, I would not consider that um, any kind of hardship. I, you know, and I'm sure not everybody was.
1: So anyone listening out there, <laughs> if you know anyone who wants to uh, finance just us, <laughs> right? You know,
0: us being us. Uh, yeah, you know, I
1: mean, because you know, I, I, you know, I love where I, I love my job, I really do. <laughs> but if someone said, "Hey, I'm gonna just," you know, like you said just finance you living um, and you can just make podcast and music and read all the time. <laughs> I wouldn't complain.
0: Well, and, and you know, and I, and I don't want to like sound like we're being flippant and saying, Oh, this was no hardship and it was no you know, big deal. I mean, no, it was hard work, but living, sure. living at this time was hard work. Uh, surviving at mm-hmm. this time was hard work when you can't, I have lived in a home with no running water. Okay. Anytime you have to go someplace and walk with containers to bring water into your home, that's hard work. Uh, it makes living a whole lot more difficult. Anytime you have to build a fire for heat or something to cook on, which I have done, and not just for like a camping trip, but months in, at a time, that's hard work. And so, um, You know, people don't always understand that our level of hardship is totally different than their level of hardship. Mm -hmm. Uh, As far as uh, theirs was more, I think, often uh, very physical and taxing on the body where our hardships, I mean, let's just be honest, 90% of them are manufactured in our own minds that have way too much time and energy to construct horrible scenarios. Um, you know, it's amazing to me how many things become unimportant whenever you're just trying to eat, when mm-hmm. that's a mm-hmm. struggle. Uh, you don't have a lot of time for existential angst. And uh, we, we deal with that quite a bit in our society, and I, I personally think a lot of our, our problems would be our emotional and mental problems would be helped, not cured, but helped, if we'd all had to get a little sweaty from time to time. But I just, and, and I say that throwing no stones. I say that as someone with a bipolar diagnosis. I, I have to have that outlet. And if I don't do that occasionally, then you don't want to be with me. So anyway, back to the text before I get us in too much trouble. Verse 17, at the king's command, they were quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with breast stones. Then verse 18 talks about Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the men in Gabal. Uh, They were cut and prepped, uh, the stones and the timber, and they did this at the quarry, and we're going to get into why that was important a little later. Uh, This is interesting that the writer notes the stones worked by these men, which which include the men of Gabal, were great stones for the foundation. Uh, One of the hallmarks of the Phoenician um, style of building, which we talked about some last week, were these massive foundation stones, and they would slowly Become uh, taller with each, uh, smaller with each level, but the fact that it fits, the description fits what we know to be historically accurate. Another one of those little uh, interesting things, and and this really is—it's it, just a fascinating turn of events because we're, we're kind of seeing this reversal where there's a multitude of worship places where the Israelites are worshiping the, their God. And they're still co-opting some of the high places. We talked about that earlier. Now we're coming to a single point of worship, and the foundation, the 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 beginnings of this this wonderful structure where God is going to indwell is being created not just by Israel but by representatives from so many different nations that they're all contributing to laying the foundation of. The temple. And we tend to think of the temple as being something that's almost wholly Hebrew, something that is not, um, that has nothing to do with other nations. And that's almost a a deception that will just, it will lead you far astray because we forget that this really is about inclusion. And so Solomon isn't building something just for Israel to be able to worship their God. We learn later in the Bible, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. So Mm -hmm. it's really, I find it fascinating that from the very foundation, all nations are being represented in different ways throughout. And there is not this exclusivity that we've kind of been told is the only way to read this. And it's a, I think it's a powerful, um, a powerful image.
1: Yeah, well, and yeah, that's the thing. When we talk about the the elect or the chosen, you know, Israel was not chosen uh, to exclude all other nations, but they were chosen to bring all the other nations to God. Exactly. And uh, we we forget that when a lot of times when we read our Bible, and we've we've got to stop doing that. (laughs) Right. Well, and we're going to talk about how that's part of the reason for the
0: exile. By the time we get there. It's because Israel had developed this exclusionary ideology that they were sent out. God says, if you aren't going to invite people in and you're not going to facilitate bringing them into the fold, then I'm going to send you out. You aren't going to have a choice in the matter at this point. And the choice, the thing is, they had a choice up until they did the wrong thing. And and I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the really cool things. And I, I really didn't mean to go here. I think one of the cool things I see in God's discipline. Is I will give you a choice up until it doesn't serve my purposes. And the minute you st- you lose the plot, that you forget that you have a an obligation, then I'm just going to rearrange circumstances where even despite you and despite your attitude, I'm still going to get my way. But he doesn't rob us or deny us of the ability to make the choice. We get to make the choice even to our own detriment. So um, anyhow, more about choices, all about choices throughout this book, because we're going to find out there's some really awful choices made. So chapter six and seven, let's talk about them. Um, We are going to go over each verse, but I wanted to kind of give an overview before we get into them, because they give us the details of Solomon's building projects, and this includes the temple. Uh, So we start out with the, the structure of the temple itself. And that's in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, we look at Solomon's palace. Rashi has some interesting comments on that. And then we pick up again in verse 13 of chapter 7 through 51, and it talks about the accoutrements, the, the utensils used for worship that are within the temple. And now the problem is, anytime we're talking about something being built, we're using technical terms. And technical terms are very specific, and they're specific to time, location, job, people, cultures. There's all these conditions they have to meet for that specific moment, and the problem is they don't always hold up well over the passage of time. And you know we, we should know this from our own language. Uh, you know we could talk about things like a flip side. Uh, we can talk about hanging up or dialing a phone. We can talk about uh, adjusting the rabbit ears. Now our you know the younger generation may have some idea of what those mean, uh, what those braces mean as applied in our time, in right now. But they may not have any clue as to where those sayings originated and how they originally applied. I mean, you're the flip side of a record. I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. Uh, hanging up a phone. You don't hang up a phone anymore. Uh, and right. I actually saw a video on, on uh, Facebook where a girl was like, oh, you literally hung the phone on a hook. She had no idea that's where the, the that phrase came from. Uh, so, you know, so technical terms are tricky in translation because, you know, think about a non-native English speaker from 400 years ago trying to figure out a flip side. Well,
1: you, even an English speaker from Australia, you know, there was a, a I had a, you remember, you remember Dean? Um, <laughs> who we used to work with not off the bat. I don't know if yeah. you remember him. He, he was hilarious. He liked to mess with people. He said, his name is Dane. <laughs> you say Dane. He said, no, Dane, he said, Dane. No, Dane, not Dane. You say, spell it D E A N. Oh, Dean. Yeah. Dane. And you're like, Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> see how this is going. But the, um, yeah, he was a lot of fun, but, um, I, uh, I had to, uh, I said something about a flea market. He was like, he had no idea what a flea market was. Right. You know, and I said, "Well, it's it's just kind of like a little shop where people sell like just kind of hodgepodge things." What's hodgepodge? You know, like yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it if you're not if you're not from there if you're not from there you don't know you know kind of deal.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's it, and that's what makes translation an art just as much as a, as a science. You've got to know what to keep in, what to explain, what to just you know go just run with. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, terms get redefined and reapplied all the time and they may have absolutely no, well, very little connection back to where they originated. And so, um, the, and one of the problems with chapter six and seven, because there are so many technical terms and they were so sp- specific, to the time of at least the writing of the book of Kings, if not um, to the time of Solomon. They were already archaic by the time the translators of the Septuagint got a hold of the text. Mm -hmm. And so when the translators of the Septuagint, which is for those who haven't been with us, the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, when they got a hold of it, they're trying to make sense of it. They tried to quote unquote smooth it out is the how we usually speak of it as translators. Uh, make it easier to understand. They just made a bigger mess of things. And so um, I, I, and I'm and i not going to go into specific examples because unless you're a language person, it probably isn't going to mean anything. But right. uh, I, I just want to point that out because these are not easy chapters to to translate and understand, and I think sometimes we think that um, that oh, it's it's the Bible, you know, everybody should just get it. And I do think that the parts that are important, the parts that are necessary for salvation and practice, absolutely, I think those those are very clear. But whenever we get into the kind of these historical documents, that's where things get a little messy, and that's where people who enjoy languages get to have a little fun. um so. Or a lot of frustration. So, <laughs> chapter six, verse one. In the four hundred year, a four hundred and eightieth year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the months of Zev, there was, which was the second month, he began to build a house of the Lord. Okay. So, the first thing that stands out in this verse is the specificity of the date. I don't think we've had any passage in the text so far that is this specific of a date. Uh, you know, 480 years after the Exodus, four years into Solomon's reign, the second month. Uh, it, it's really, um, it's above and beyond what you would expect. Because usually, you know, you get an idea of a time frame, but you really don't get this detailed. And this has sparked so many debates and you know how accurate is this how how far can we trust this dating and so there's one side that says that basically this is a symbolic number and you know obviously when you're dealing with biblical numbers um symbolism is something we we need to take into account and Mm -hmm. um There's uh, another side that says this is absolutely literal. This is absolutely accurate. Maybe it's rounded. There's another side that says this has nothing to do with years uh, at all. That it is an estimation of the passage of time based on generations. Um, And there's a lot of back and forth trying to figure out exactly how to read this. Now, I did take some time to to look up like, okay, if this is symbolic, what would 480 represent? Anytime you start to have more than one number, uh, you know, a numeric symbol in the number, like a 4, an 8, and a 0, you begin increasing the odds that there's multiple, uh, multiple meanings to this number. And so there are so many things that 480 could mean that I don't really find any reason to think we can just, you know, grab onto one and say that's correct. Um, There's one suggestion that basically uh, the heavens, the earth, and Elohim, when you add up the numeric uh, value of those three words in Hebrew, equal 480. 480 which you know kind of makes sense and it works well with it with the temple because this is supposed to be where heaven and earth join where elohim is um but netflix the word netflix also has symbolic meaning with 480 um i did not come up with that it could be wrong i found it on google i just thought it was a nice relatable example uh but um You know, when we're trying to figure out a symbolic meaning to a number, excuse me, it's really helpful if we have the number used in similar situations and ways in various Mm -hmm. places in the Bible. So, like, 40, 40 is a great example because we've got the flood. We've got the forty years in the wilderness. We got Jesus, the forty days in the wilderness there with the temptation. These are this is a great number to to be able to point to. Oh, this is what it could mean. Um, Three is another um, another good representation. Uh, Jonah in the belly of the well for three. Jesus, um, you know, died and rose again on the third day. These these are really easy numbers to see a pattern applied to. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. This word for the 80th year, specifically 80th, it appears one time in the Bible. Right. So we we don't have that. Now, the reason why there's a, a question of debate. If this is accurate, if this is a number we can rely on, we know when the exodus occurs. And it's very easy to to nail down. The problem is we have two kind of the most popular options for when the uh, exodus occurs. And there's good arguments for both of those about why why they could have happened at those timeframes. So uh, if the date for the exodus is 1450 BCE-ish, then it works as an accurate number. If we want to date the Exodus to 1290, 1250, somewhere in there, then it would have to be an approximation based on generations. And so the this verse becomes a point of debate because of what it could reveal about the the previous events. Mm -hmm. And so we, we need to be really careful <clears throat> when we look at words and we look at numbers, to, to try not to stretch them beyond what they're supposed to be. And, but we also need to respect when they are being used in different ways. Because when you don't have a calendar, you don't have a clock on your phone, you don't have alarms. So when your world doesn't run according to these real strict divisions of times dictated to you from an outside source, such as you know, an outside mechanical source. Time doesn't have the same impact. It, it, it becomes something much more fluid. And there is a real shift in our perception of time when we begin having begin having these real stark divisions between 9 and 10 a.m., you know, there, there's something that happens psychologically with that. And, and I say that as someone who refused to have clocks in my home for years, I kind of resent the fact that there's a clock on my phone. Um, I would have access. Don't get me wrong. I'd have access to the time. But... One of the decisions I made a long time ago was to stop letting this little mechanical thing dictate my life. And so, you know, because I hate, I absolutely hate when I'm in the middle of a good conversation and I look up at it's 2 a.m. And all of a sudden my brain goes from, wow, I'm engaged, I'm alive, I'm having fun, this is wonderful, to, oh, I need to be asleep now. So, uh, you know, I, I love, there's a freedom that comes with with not having those kinds of stark delineation and i'm not saying this is the most responsible thing to do i should probably point that out but it worked for the season i was in now i'm having to be a little bit more conscientious at the time and these cultures that we're talking about even when this was written you know the closest thing you had to a timepiece was a sundial and Mm. you know when when you let those natural rhythms take over you you don't really care about marking the days on the calendar. And so we aren't after necessarily precision. We're after <clears throat> excuse me, an idea of a passage of time. And the so one of the reasons was like, well, you hear this, you hear me say that, but you're like, but Emily, it was so specific. I really think the point that's what's going on here is we're supposed to understand this as a literal historical event. We are not supposed to miss the fact that this did not happen in some abstract time and place. There was a moment, no matter when that moment was, where Solomon set out to fulfill his intention to build the temple. It happened. That moment was crystallized. It came to fruition. And it was a real verifiable historical event that impacted the course of the nation's history. And because it is so significant, it is marked in this very specific way. And so that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind. Sometimes it's not necessarily the specificities of what's being said. It's the reason why there's so much specific detail given. And so I, I just want to, um, I, I wanted to talk about that because people want to go, well, you know, it has to be dead on the money. It has to be 100% precise if I'm going to be able to say that the Bible is true. Mm-hmm. A- and these numbers so often were never meant to be 100% accurate. They're just supposed to give you an idea, a suggestion. This idea of precision is something that really didn't come along until we had better ways to catalog both time, the number of people, you know, how big. Raw
1: the, information. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's a pretty recent development. So. Yeah.
1: I mean, the, the amount of space it takes just to just to catalog just raw data, I mean, is is ridiculous. And we're. Like, yeah, we're just now getting to the point where we can catalog as much stuff as we do. Well,
0: think of how big phone books used to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, just a phone book. And so, um, now, one of the cool things that, that happened with, with this story, because it is, um, it, because this verse is so specific, Rashi could not help himself. He actually decided that it needed to be even more specific. And so he said that this is, corresponds directly to 480 years from the time Moses constructed the tabernacle. And so he says, "This, this is the point where um, the, the time is being measured from. It's not from the Exodus itself, it's from the building of the tabernacle, and now we have the building of the temple." Well, then Arbanel says, oh, you know, hey, that's a really good thing. I'm going to tell everybody that it was 480 years from the time Solomon's temple was built until the second temple was built. And the math almost works, not quite, but it's, uh, I mean, Solomon reigned 970-ish BCE, and then the second temple was built, you know, 416, 20. i'm sorry 516 521 somewhere around in there There, there's still debate on the precise uh years if we go back and look at archaeological and historical records but um it was not uh something that uh yeah i think we just need to be careful in saying we've got we can be that precise with the date oh i don't think we can but um now, what I do find to be the most interesting about this verse is that it tells us the month. And a lot of times we don't have that information. It's in the month of Ziv. Uh, it's the second month of the year, the first month of the year. And by the way, this is the agricultural calendar because uh, in, in the Hebrew cu- cultures, you had different calendars. So this the first month of the agricultural calendar is Nisan. That's whenever you celebrate uh, the Passover. And then Ziv is um, the month where. Everything starts to bloom. It's when spring is there. It's uh, it can mean brilliance. It can mean beauty. Uh, it can mean splendor. And so the the month is named for the fact that you know the earth is kind of waking up and everything's becoming beautiful. And uh, now, of course, the the sages and the rabbis they saw this as an indication of what the temple was supposed to be. It's supposed to be the stunning, beautiful uh, building. It's supposed to represent these things throughout the year for everyone, that God is the source of life. But the really fun part of this is it was probably chosen because this is when the spring rains have stopped. And once the spring rains have stopped, now you can move things up and down roads that were muddy last week. Now Mm -hmm. you have a chance for the mortar to dry in your building. Um, you know, it, so it's not always this big, beautiful spiritual idea that's being communicated. Sometimes there's some practicalities taken into account there. Uh, we really don't, you know, I, I, I don't think we should discount that this is when it happened and that there is probably some element of truth being revealed in the fact that it's the second month and that this is this time of, you know, just gorgeous things happening in the earth. But Solomon's a pretty wise guy, and he knows that it's not going to be a good thing to have to try to fight the spring rains to build this colossal building. And so, it, and you don't have to be the smartest person in the world to know that. We're talking about doing some remodeling and trying to get a roof fixed. We're trying to get it done before the fall rains, uh, you know, because it just makes sense. So, um, I, I, I think it's interesting that whenever I was studying this I didn't find yet the Christian commentators just they they read it and go okay I don't need to add a lot to that it's pretty straightforward the Hebrew commentators went oh wow this is the basis for great stories and there's actually uh, probably next week we're going to get into one of the wildest extra biblical Pieces of folklore out there. And we're going to show where that began within chapter six and some of the details of the building of the temple. Um, Just because I want people to see where some of these stories started and why they started. And, you know, because I I don't think it's because, um, I don't think it's because of ill intent or being malicious. And I, right. I, I, cause I think there's a lot of people who aren't Jewish who look at these Jewish stories and they go, Oh, they're just trying to corrupt the text. I, I don't think that's what it is. I, I think there is a desire to, to understand things that you really just can't understand. And I think that as Christians, we do this in a different way. And so we may not construct a story to add to the Bible, but we, we kind of allow our modern ideas to color how we read the Bible in ways that aren't always beneficial and, and can actually be quite confusing to outsiders. And so you know, and I think a good example, you know, look back to that verse, the resident alien, that could really, really be confusing to someone who does not understand. They're just referring to Gentiles there so Mm -hmm. um it's probably a good place well okay good
1: yeah well i was was gonna say uh real quick i mean we we tend to i mean i think i know which which uh legend or folklore (laughs) you're referring to um and it is pretty interesting i want to hear what you've got to say about that but the because we have talked if it's the one i'm thinking of, we talked about it before we uh, have (laughs) but uh but it yeah but you're saying about like we tend to to try to make things understandable in our own way and, and it, we generally what tend to fall into one of two ditches is either we over miraculize things or we under miraculize things yeah. and uh, want to make them more more miraculous or less or more you know or less supernatural than they are and so i think uh i think that should lead into some pretty good discussion so we'll see what happens
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so I'll, i'm glad to have another week to prepare that because i ran out of time last night. So. Anyway. <laughs> well, it seems like,
1: seems like we came to the best place to stop. Exactly. So um, anyway, well, hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you want to be part of the conversation, as always, hit us up on social media. Raven Creek SC is where you can find us there. And if you can run the Google, you can find Raven Creek Social <laughs> Club. Uh, just uh, just give us a search and uh, we'll be there somewhere. Uh, so, Anyway, um, that being said, uh, we'll see everyone next week. And thanks for joining us. We'll see you. Bye. Bye. faith and other oddities podcast
0: a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write us a review on itunes or
1: consider supporting us on patreon.com slash raven creek sc as always thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week